Hey guys, in your Bibles, in the New Testament, the New Testament starts with four books we call the Gospels, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with all the contents of each of those books, but most of you know the names of the writers of those books. Those four names are in one sense so ubiquitous in our culture. At one point, my mom had kind of set out to name each of her sons after one of the Gospel writers. I was John. And then my next little brother came along, and his name was Matthew. Then my next little brother came along, and his name was Luke, Mark, no, Glenn. Apparently my mom had discovered some lesser-known disciple. And then my sister came along, and she got named not Mary, but Melissa. And I'm guessing at this point my mom was in full backslide mode. Anyway, Matthew... Mark and Luke, they write what theologians refer to as the synoptic gospels. They're similar in structure, content, and wording, and, and if you set them side by side, they provide a synopsis of the entire life, death, resurrection, and ministry of Jesus. Now the fourth gospel writer, John, who was a disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness of all the things that he wrote about, he writes his gospel last, well after the others. And so he had more time to reflect on all of the events and, and communicate many of those events. He chose to communicate them in a different fashion. The study of why John writes differently is fascinating. I'm not going to get into it right now. But one of the differences is that John, he writes with great imagery and he focuses a lot on the divinity of Jesus. For example, Matthew and Luke, they start their gospel accounts with genealogies and the birth narratives of Jesus. They provide the context for all of our Christmas stories. John, John, after a lifetime of serving Jesus, suffering for Jesus, he begins a different way. He opens like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's with, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, through the Word, all things were made, and without the Word, nothing was made that's been made. In the Word was life, and that life was the light of all of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, this is just stunningly beautiful. It's absolutely poetic. What I love is that after some 60 or 70 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, after all of those decades of ministry and reflection, John chooses one word, just one to describe Jesus. And that word is? Well, believe it or not, it's, it's word. He calls Jesus the word of God. Now, theologians have argued over why. Some, says it, some say it has to do with the Greek word logos, which is the language John wrote in, and word in Greek is logos. And so John was appealing perhaps specifically to, an, to a Greek audience who understood that the word logos it conveyed to them an abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. And so theologians have thought maybe John was essentially trying to tell the Greeks the reason behind the universe and its order, that it wasn't abstract, that it was Jesus. Others think it was written so that Jewish writers would understand that the Old Testament writings, what they referred to as the Law and the Prophets, which they venerated, that those were all summed up in the person of Jesus. He was that word. Yet still others would say he called Jesus the word since Jesus in his coming and teaching, dying and rising, 
was the final and decisive message of God. All of them are interesting takes. Yet, stick with me now on this, I can't ignore this one powerful truth. God, in the creation accounts in Genesis, he speaks the world into being. In other words, and John restates it, all things that were created were created by a word, the word. John would put it another way. The most powerful being that's ever drawn breath, he was the word. And so the question begs, is there a more powerful force in all of the world than words? Words are powerful. Words create worlds. This summer, my, my goal is that we as a church would take note of this one powerful biblical truth, one that John, along with many, many writers of the Scriptures, understood, and it's this. Everything begins with a word. Perhaps coming into this morning and maybe before spending the next bunch of weeks looking at this, maybe you just assume that words were just mere vibrations or sounds. But there's a consistency in the Scripture. There's a consistent truth conveyed over centuries. These vibrations, these words, create our worlds. Words spoken to us, spoken over us, spoken from us. Words have the power, like nothing else in the world, to create the very reality that surrounds us. They're that powerful. Now, you might think I'm overstating it, but I'm not. The book of Proverbs, it's right in the middle of your Bible. This is a book of ancient wisdom. Here's how the writer of Proverbs summed up the power of words. He said, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power of life and death. And I'm going to show you, he's not overstating this. And he goes on, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Another translation puts it this way. Those who love it will reap its consequences. The power of words spoken to us, over us, and from us. And so it's with that introduction that I welcome you to our summer series called Say This and Not That. We're going to, over the coming weeks, Look to change our vocabulary. We're going to swap out what we might usually say to ourselves or to others in favor of something else. Because if we can change our words, we can change our world. Change our words, change our worlds. That's the power of words. Now, you guys know this. We all know, more importantly, we've all felt the power of words. I know right now Many of you, even as I'm saying this, you can immediately feel the sting of past words. Those words have shaped your life. Words create our world. I know they've impacted me. Words inspire and create, and words crush and destroy. Let me give you a couple personal examples. When I was in sixth grade, my teacher was Mr. Wicks. And Mr. Wicks had my mom and dad come in for a parent-teacher conference one day, and apparently Mr. Wicks was a big fan told my parents I was the smartest kid in his class and that his class was the highest level class in the grade. And then Mr. Wicks told my parents I had the ability to do anything I wanted in life and said to them, I know that this young man is going to be very successful. Well, with the benefit of history and hindsight, here's what we know about Mr. Wicks. 
He wasn't all that adept at judging intelligence or prophesying futures. But it didn't matter if he was right or wrong because that's the power of words. It doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong because my parents came home and they were beaming with pride. Why? Because words mattered to them too. And they told me what he said. That was 40 years ago. And despite all prevailing evidence to the contrary, here I am this morning still talking about the confidence in my intelligence because of something Mr. Wick said. Now conversely, words also have the power to destroy. And again, it doesn't matter if the words are true or false. I'll tell you something else about words. They're not all created equal. Here's what I mean by that. Growing up, if you're a little boy, maybe if you're a little girl, I guess they tell you how pretty you are. When you're a little boy, you get told you're handsome all the time. You know, your mom brings you for a haircut. Oh, isn't he handsome? You go to your grandma's and she brings you out to the store and her friends are there, meet, meet her friends, and they all gush over you. Oh, isn't he handsome? And yet all those words amounted to a whole hill of nothing. When one day I was out running at a high school track meet and some girls ran by in the other direction and I'm guessing I wasn't looking at my best that day because as they went by, they laughed at me. And that still hurts. Thousands of your handsomes by old ladies. One chuckle from some high school girls, and to this day I'm still going to the gym to try to prove them wrong. That's the power of words. And more importantly, the power of those who wield them. I love my dad. I would tell you he's one of the best dads in the world. I had in many ways literally like a Tom Sawyer storybook childhood. He cheered me on. He's a huge advocate of mine, has been, still is. I always felt loved by him. I always felt important to him. And yet, yet, he probably spoke words of encouragement to me a thousand times. I hardly remember them. But I can tell you where I was and what he said those couple of times he didn't. Words make worlds. And here's the craziest thing. Everyone has an equal ability to speak. I mean, if you think it's, it's scary that anybody can have a baby, it's scarier that, that everybody was given a tongue. I mean, heck, even if you lose your voice, you can still write a letter. And you know what makes, you know what that makes you in the life of many people? You know what that makes you in your own life? It makes you a really powerful force. For, as the writer of Proverbs said, life or death. James was the little brother of Jesus. He has lots to say about this issue. You'd imagine he knows something about the power of the tongue since he grew up in the same house as the Word of God. Here's what James learned about the Word from the Word. He writes, we all stumble in many ways. Ain't that the truth? In other words, we all screw up. We all make messes. We all make mistakes. We're human beings. None of us is perfect. Well, actually, that's not true, James goes on to say. He says, anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. They're able to keep their whole body in check. Yes, we all screw things up in our lives and in the lives of others, but do you want to know who's perfect, James says? It's the person who never screws up with their words. If what they say is perfect, well, then they'd be perfect. you know why? 
Well, we know why, because words are powerful. And if their words are perfect, then they'd be able to keep their whole body in check. That's how powerful words are. James would say that's the power of your words in your life and in the life of others. And he goes on now to try to prove his point to his audience. That'd be you and me. He goes, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. And you've seen this, right? My grandmother, she, she, her house was right next to a, a horse farm. And you would just see these massive creatures, big, huge, honking, strong horses. And what controls this incredibly muscular beast? This small little bit in his mouth. James says, you get control of the mouth, you get control of the horse. You tame the tongue, you turn the animal. James would go on, I think, to tell you. Tame the tongue, turn your life. More examples. He says, take ships as an example. Although they're so large and they're driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small little rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. I mean, in James' first century world, a ship was about the biggest thing he could think of. And he says, you know how big a ship is? How powerful a ship in the wind is, right? I mean, you think a horse is big and powerful. How about a ship? And yet with all that power, you know what changes the trajectory of a ship? The same thing that changes the trajectory of a life. A very small, tiny little object, which if you control allows the pilot to go wherever he wants to go. Control the rudder, control the ship. Control the tongue, control your life. Likewise, he says, the tongue is, is a small part of the body. It's just like the bit and the rudder, but it makes great boasts. James is saying, look, it doesn't matter how big you are, how tough you are, how successful you are, how many degrees you hold, how many titles you acquire, how much money you have in your bank. Your life winds up being moved, changed, and directed, not by any of those things. Your life gets changed by one force more than any other, your mouth. Now, if you think I'm passionate about this, he keeps going. Consider, he says, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. I told you he was fired up. James is saying you have to understand your words, your mouth can get you into trouble. It can destroy your world in the same way a small spark can destroy a mountainside. Now some of you know this. Words you've spoken or words that have been spoken to you have destroyed your marriage. They've destroyed your family. They've destroyed your children. They've destroyed your friendship. They've destroyed your career. It's so funny, James wrote this. This is why I love the scriptures. James wrote this 2,000 years ago. These words were never more true than right now. Today, in the cancel culture we find ourselves in, there is no longer tolerance for, you know, it was just a slip of the tongue. Our words today are literally sparking riots in the streets. You have a job, you want a future, well, you better watch what you say. 
you know, you probably should read that text again before you hit send. Maybe reflect a few more minutes before hitting post. We are killing ourselves with our words, and I think, I think James would say, yeah, I told you, because they have a power behind them, what he calls the power of hell. In other words, what's behind them is our brokenness, the brokenness of sin that's within each of us. It's the fuel behind the words that destroy our lives and the lives of others. That's what words do. They destroy our lives, and they have the potential to destroy the, the lives of others. And our natural tendency is to minimize our part in it. I mean, you've said it. Well, I mean, they're just too sensitive. That's just me. I just like to tell it what it is. Well, if you don't like it, you need to toughen up. I was just joking. Come on. I didn't mean anything by it. Well, that's the way I just grew up. In my family, we just said it like it is, and so I can't help it. I think James would say, no, no. It actually might not have been what you meant, but you started the fire. You flicked the match on purpose or accidentally. It's still your fire. And you know why? Because it came from within you. And then he goes on almost back to the, the perfect part in the beginning. Remember when he wrote that we all stumble in many ways, but the person who's never at fault in what they say is perfect? He goes on, he goes, I, I just, this is so great. He goes, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. You guys know this? You ever been to a, a Ringling Brothers circus? You got elephants dancing, you got bears juggling. Go to SeaWorld, uh, whales. Well, some of the biggest creatures on earth. We've got Shamu, or at least we used to have Shamu, playing with the crowds. But no human tongue, or no human being, can tame the tongue. It turns out nobody's perfect. You know why? Because nobody, nobody, nobody has the ability to tame their tongue. Tame a whale, that's how good human beings are. We just can't figure the tongue out. And then he finishes with this warning. He says, guys, you need to understand it's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. That's the power and the potency of the tongue. And it's why, it's why words make worlds. And since they do, it's important to understand this. Words can break, but words can also build. Unfortunately, because of our broken nature, when words come out of us, they tend to flow out of that broken nature. And so, and so they tend to elevate ourselves and harm others. Here's a really interesting side note. Just, I'm going to throw this out there and you can think about it. Have you ever noticed that the words that flow quite naturally out of our mouths tend to elevate ourselves and we do that by harming others? But the words that somehow get played in our heads, the words we speak internally to ourselves, the voice that plays in our head, it tends to use words. It tends to say things to us that elevate others and harm us. Think about that for a little bit. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament after those four Gospels, Paul, in writing to a church in a city called Ephesus, in chapter 4 of that letter, he starts addressing what he calls our old self and these deceitful desires in our heart that often make their way unwittingly out of our mouths. 
Here's what he told his audience. He goes, you are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And so, if we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, which the Scriptures teach, has come into our lives, we now live, remember from last week, we, don't live under the law, we now live under the law of the Spirit, not under the law of sin and death, not under our old nature. If we were to be renewed by the transformation of our minds, then guess what powerful force Paul says would be immediately impacted? How would we change? Paul goes on. And so since that's true, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Paul says that's part of our new nature. We don't let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. We don't let words that are crude, rude, or hurtful slip out. We don't give them voice. Now notice, Paul knows our nature. Paul wrestled with the new man and the old man himself. He's not denying that you won't have an urge at times to say them. But guys, as they move up from your belly and through you, into your chest and up your throat and into your voice box, do this. Close your lips. Don't let them out. You might feel them. You might want to say them. But James explains you all the power of them. So you know what? Spiritual principle number one. Can I just give you a spiritual principle to live by? I've given it to you before. Shut your mouth. You want one principle that'll change your life? Just shut up. It's not just the New Testament teaching. Proverbs 15, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Proverbs 21, those who guard their mouths, who guard their mouths and their tongues, keep themselves from calamity. The psalmist prayed over this. He said, God, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Gosh, for those of us who follow Jesus, I have to tell you, I wish we were as concerned with guarding our lips as we are with guarding our hearts. Now, there is only one exception to the just shut up principle. And it's this, because words have such power. If you're going to let them out, if you're going to unguard, unlock your lips, then here's what you let out. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's a two-part instruction. Because you have such power in your life and in the lives of others with your words, here is what you let slip out. Make sure whatever gets out does two things. Make sure that, number one, they're helpful in building others up. Is what I'm about to say, is it going to be helpful in the construction of this human being? Is what I'm about to say going to be helpful now remember, saying hard things, telling the truth in love, that can be helpful. Paul's not saying to just be some kind of phony, suck-up, smoke-blower here. You know people like that, right? Every word out of their mouth is a compliment. They, they just gush praise on everyone. I, I had a friend that was like this, and uh, you know, every time we talked, he was just the nicest guy, sweetest guy, and every time I'd come off the stage after I gave a sermon, 
he would come up and tell me that it was just the greatest sermon he'd ever heard, what an incredible order I was, and, and I just loved to be with him. But then one day, we had a guest speaker here at church, and um, he wasn't that good. Uh, and most of the folks in the church were not conscious. Um, but afterwards, I heard my friend go up to the preacher and gush praise over how that was one of the greatest and most powerful sermons he had ever heard. See, people like that, they lose their influence. You want your words to retain power in the lives of people you can build up. So of course you can tell the truth. Of course you can say hard things, but you say them in love. The intention behind them is the key. Listen to me now. This is the trick. The intention behind what you say has to be to build someone up and not to tear them down. See, are we're really good at being truth-tellers in order to tear other people down. But Paul goes, no, 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 no. We don't do that. That doesn't pass the test. The truth does not get past your lips if that's what you're trying to do. You only speak to people words that are helpful in building them up. It's a construction term. We're all, in, in a sense, in a spiritual construction process. Your words are either going to be like building material in my life. My word, words are either going to be like building material in your life, or they're going to come through like wrecking balls. You speak words that would be helpful in building up and not tearing down. And I love this next part. He says, that those words need to be spoken according to their needs, according to their needs. And you know what that means? That means before you speak, you have a responsibility. And it's not to make sure that you say something brilliant or you have the perfect answer or just the right comeback. Your responsibility is to know the needs of the one to whom you speak. You don't just say the same thing to everyone. Our words are not a one-size-fits-all. This is about their needs, not mine. Hmm, that sounds kind of like a gospel principle, doesn't it? See, when I speak most of the time, my communication is often about getting across or meeting my needs. I have a need uh, that I need you to understand where I'm coming from. I need you to know that I'm right. I need you to think I'm smart. I need you to know what school I went to, what title I have, what kind of car I drive. Paul goes, no, 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 you're not getting it. You don't use your words to build yourself up in the eyes of others. You use your words to build them up according to what it is that they need. Now, can you know the needs of everybody you speak to? Well, I mean, at one level, yes, there are basic human needs for love and respect, admiration and affirmation. But I think that what Paul's asking us to do goes even deeper, at least for those of us that are in relationships. Don't, for example, just say what comes to mind. Say what they need to hear. What my wife needs to hear from me is different than what your wife needs to hear from you. What my kids need to hear from me is different than what your kids need to hear from you. I'll tell you something else that took me many, many years of parenting to understand. And parents, I can save you a lot of pain and trouble with this one little tip. What one of your kids needs to hear from you is likely quite different than what another one of your kids needs to hear from you. See, part of being a good mom or a good dad, a good spouse, a good boss, a good friend, Actually, forget the good part, right? Part of being a Christian mom, dad, spouse, boss, and friend is studying those 
learning those to whom we speak and ensuring that the words we speak to them are what they need to build them up. Some words that you speak to one child will inspire them to greatness. But if you speak the same words to another child, the weight of them could be crushing. Some words I've spoken to my wife thinking I was just being sarcastic have been anything but funny, and they've opened up childhood wounds. Yet, yet, Paul says you have with these words the power of life and death. Study those you love and speak life to them. Paul finishes it up this way. He says, look, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgive you. You know what I take that to mean? Here's your takeaway from today. We're called to forgive others, just as, remember that from a few weeks ago, the power of just as. We're called to forgive, just as Christ has forgiven us. But if that's true, I, I, I think this is true too. We're then also called to speak to and over others, just as God in Christ Jesus has spoken to and over us. Guys, you, you speak to others. You speak to yourself with that little voice in your head. You speak words that Christ spoke over you. You speak them to yourself and to others. And what are those things? Words of love, affirmation, acceptance, not judgment or condemnation. Because you see, the gospel, it turns out, isn't just something we believe in. It's something that not only shapes our lives, but our words, it shapes our words, and our words shape our worlds. And so that's what we're going to be doing this summer. Instead of saying this to ourselves and others, we're going to learn to say that. Instead of saying, instead of saying burn down today, we're going to learn to build up. And what's the process? First, we recognize the life-giving or death-producing power of our words. Guys, you've got to get that deep down into your heart. Your words matter like few other things. I'd encourage you during this series, put a little sign somewhere where you'll see it every day. Words make worlds. Words make worlds. When your husband's leaving for the day, when your kids are getting up and maybe getting ready to go to day camp, remember to yourself, my words make the world. My words make the world. Husbands, so important. What you say to your wife and, and, and the expression, the weight your words are going to carry to your kids. Second, we're going to first shut up. Remember, it was the same James who would tell us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. We're going to guard not just our hearts, but our lips. Third, we're going to listen. And as we do, we're going to discern the need for those we're talking to. We're not going to meet our needs with our words. We're going to meet theirs. You could work on this this week. Gentlemen, what does your wife need to hear from you? Wives, what's your husband need to hear from you? How about your sons, your daughters, the people that you work with? What, could you, what kind of building words could you use, could you speak into their lives? And then finally, we're going to speak to ourselves and to others the way God through Christ Jesus speaks to us with words of grace, forgiveness, love, acceptance, affirmation. And when words of correction are needed, we are going to bring them wrapped in mercy and love. That's it, friends. 
Those were a lot of words. I hope that in some of them you found life. And I'll see you back here next Sunday when we take a look at the first word you ever spoke, but one you've likely forgotten to use. Until then, I love all of you. I'll see you back here next week.